Welcome to the Glory Podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. Our mission is to declare God's glory. Please visit glorychurchkc.com to hear all of our other messages. Good morning, guys. Hi. As you've probably noticed, I'm not Greg. Um, Because he's going to have a baby soon, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, My name is Josiah. Uh, My wife, Meg, and I lead uh, the prayer and intercession team here at uh, at Glory Church, which is super, super awesome. So if you've ever, like, written down a prayer request or something, yes, I know your mail a little bit, but I promise I'm praying for you. Uh, I promise. Uh, (laughs) This is super cool. So thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, If you could turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be picking up where Greg left off uh, in verse 15. Yeah. I, I kind of do want to just pray, if that's okay. Um, Father, your word is alive, and your word is good. You are going to speak to us, and I know that. But I just, I want to say it again, that we need your rest, Lord There's a lot of tiredness in this room. There's a lot of uh, frustration and confusion. So Lord, thank you for moving. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. For these things in the name of Jesus. So this morning, uh, you can go to the first slide, Jesse. I want to start with a thought experiment, if that's okay. I think it's kind of interesting. And the thought experiment is this. I'm going to ask you a question you're probably familiar with. I'm going to ask it three times from the perspective of three different people. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. You can go to the next slide, Jesse. So I'm going to ask you a question you've probably heard before, maybe even from me, okay? It's the question of what do you need prayer for? Okay? It's kind of like Christianese for I, you know? Like, hi, what do you need prayer for? It's like, I'm not usually even expecting an answer, right? It's like you asking someone how their day is. Um, so we treat that question pretty casually. We, we often treat it very lightly. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the content. So I, I want to I ask you that question, and if you can, imagine yourself hearing that from someone in your life who occupies one of these spaces, and then think about how you would answer it, okay? And remember it. Because we're going to do like a little compare and contrast. Okay, cool. Very, very teacher, I know. Yeah. All right, so the first one is this, an acquaintance. Maybe someone here at church walks up to you and asks, what do you need prayer for, AJ? And you might answer something like, work is stressful, right? My car is broken. I don't get along with my sister very well. I don't know your lives, but those seem reasonable, right? That might be how I would answer and someone I don't know very well. The second one is someone uh, who you respect and trust, maybe a close friend. Like, I actually know and trust AJ, so he might not actually answer that way for me. I wasn't trying to imply that we don't trust each other. Uh, It's funny. But maybe a pastor, okay, maybe a mentor. Maybe even someone who you, like, really respect. Like, if the Apostle Paul were to, like, rise from the grave, and I ask you, hey, what do you need prayer for? And if I were me, I think that I would answer maybe a little bit more deeply to that person. You know? Not just because I want them to think I'm like deep, but maybe a little bit, you know? Like I don't want to just give that person a rote answer, a simple answer. I want to actually think about it. So for the person I respect and trust, I might answer something like, I'm struggling with anger. You know? Something a little bit more real. Or there's a sin struggle that I just can't kick. You know? I know that I should. I know I've been trying, but it's still there. So pray for me. You know, something like that. So we're seeing, and you can disagree with me. Maybe you always give perfect answers to everyone. I don't know. And you're not superficial ever, but I know that's not me. Uh, so for the first one, we, t- we would probably answer, for any point, someone we don't know very well. We might answer something more surface level. For someone that we respect and trust, we might answer something a little deeper that we're struggling with, okay? That tends to be really what we talk about is what we're struggling with, you know? And the last one is I want you to imagine 
that you hear the audible voice of God ask you, what do you need? Okay. Got a little more quiet. <laughs> you know, if it were me, I don't know if I would know how to answer right away. You know? You know, and ideally, when we're going into deep prayer, this is what we're doing. You know, but I'm talking about you hear God literally ask you, what do you need from me right now? I wouldn't know what to say. I would probably stop and pause, you know? And I would be, I, I would like, like for you to fix it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I know that I need you to fix it, yeah. you know? That might be my answer. But I think in reality, because this isn't constantly happening to us, like, I don't know about you, but I'm not constantly hearing the audible voice of God asking me what I need. Okay, what's more, like, more likely is that God is all around us, right? And I'm avoiding this conversation most of the time, right? So it's not like this isn't an option to have this conversation. This is just something that most of the time I'm avoiding. And I know it's not just me. I should put my glasses on. (laughs) Cool. I know it's not just me. I know it's all of you too, so sorry for outing you. (laughs) That you're afraid of intimacy with God. Don't worry, you're not alone. Like, if you look in the Bible, like, Elijah would rather run to a cave than have this conversation. Jonah would rather jump out of a boat into the mouth of fish than have this conversation. David would rather abuse his power and rape someone than have this conversation. And David was pretty cool, right? Sarah would rather force another woman into her husband's bed to fulfill a promise than have this conversation. And these are all people that knew God. These are all people that eventually, and I know Jonah did it, but they all had the opportunity to reconnect with God. So it's not like I'm just talking about heathens. You know? Heathens, that's a forceful word. Uh, But I'm I'm, I'm talking about people like us. Okay? I'm, I'm talking about people who know him. So the reason I want to start with that, if, do you guys agree that those are probably how you would answer those questions? I know I spoke for you, but I figured maybe, that's maybe. Uh, one of the reasons that's interesting is because I think when I compare and contrast kind of the, the gradient of those answers, A, I see that I don't fully believe in the power of prayer. B, I see that I don't have a full grasp on my needs because if I'm literally being offered by the God of heaven for him to fix my need, I don't know what to tell him. And and see, I see that I, it is very easy for me to become more fixated on the need of my heart than what people are perceiving, right? I'm more concerned with how people are perceiving what I'm answering, you know? Like that's kind of demonstrated that we have a gradient of vulnerability when it comes to prayer. Not saying that you should tell everyone your mail. I'm just saying that that is an interesting little example of that. Does that make sense? Yes. So from this, I'm going to take a single. Oh, and the other part that is interesting about that conversation is God was telling me last night and the night before that there are many people in this room who are really struggling with confusion. That you have anger in your heart. You have shame in your heart, you have bitter. There is some strong negative emotion in your heart that is producing confusion primarily. Confusion in this season. Um, And that's kind of hard in Christian context, right? Because uh, I know that good Christians aren't supposed to be walking in shame. Okay? So if I know that in my brain, what am I prone to not acknowledge in my heart? Oh, Oh, man, it's shame. You know? Look at that. We don't understand our needs as well as God does. Okay, that's kind of the point of all of this beginning part, is I want us to at least be able to acknowledge, before we jump into this scripture, I don't know my heart as well as he does. So this morning, we are going to stop avoiding this conversation. Okay? I can't make you do that. You know? I can't. But I'd like to invite you into it. So that's what he has this morning. He has an invitation for us to acknowledge 
my own, own, own inability to know my needs. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's read this, read this Bible passage. There it is. There's the beginning of it. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Thank you, Jesse. So this is pretty cool. Why is this cool? So nerd, nerd speak says, wow, this is called an apostolic prayer. Okay? Some dude 2,000 years ago wrote this prayer down for a specific group of believers. And because the word of God is alive, and he was inspired by a living Holy Spirit of truth, what he prayed for a group of believers in Turkey 2,000 years ago, he was also praying to that's pretty cool. I don't know if you guys think that's cool. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I can learn a lot of things about prayer and my own need from saying, yo, this dude, without me asking, <laughs> was praying for things I didn't know I needed. Well, cool. So let's work backwards, okay? If it's true, then, that... Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he is praying for me about my needs. That I can learn about my needs from this prayer, right? So he's praying for, I can work backwards, and I identify things in my heart. So that's kind of a premise that we're going to work with this morning. So let's start with the why. Why is he praying for us? I like to ask questions of Scripture. It helps me understand it, okay? So that's what we're going to do. The first question is why. Why is he praying? And it's cool because the Scripture anticipated my question. And it starts with, for this reason. I'm like, cool, wow. You're literally going to tell me why you're doing this. That's nice. That's pretty cool. And he goes on, for this reason is in a reference to the previous passage that Greg preached on last week. Okay? And I know that was a long time ago, so I'm going to remind you. The main theme of the beginning of Ephesians 1 is about our identity in Christ. Okay? I know that's a Christian word. What do I mean by that? I mean that Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians that according to the will of God, before you were even born, he chose you to be adopted into the family of God. That's pretty radical. That's pretty cool that before he even knew me, he wanted me in his family. Like, whoa. He wanted to adopt us. That's, that's the key thing. It's for this reason. It's for the reason that you were adopted that he wants to pray this prayer. Does that make sense? Now, when it comes to this um, idea of adoption, it's like, well, well, why do I need prayer about that? That sounds like a good thing. That sounds like a simple thing. I'm in the family now. Adoption comes with baggage, y'all. I don't know if you have any first-hand experience with this. I've worked a little bit with kids in the foster system and have been adopted. Um, and I took some time this week to talk to some of my, my friends who went through that experience. I'm wanting to lean into this because when kids need to be adopted, it is not because of a good reason. Right? When kids need a new home, it's not because the old home they had was meeting their needs. At face level, what usually is happening is that home is actually doing damage to that child. Right? So, kids who are coming out of that context relationally have a lot of scars that they are bringing into their new home, right? What are some of the scars? Uh, some of the ones that I identified this week was trauma and trauma responses. That sounds general, right? What's a, tra- what's a trauma response? A trauma response is when you hear a barking dog, you go into fight or flight, right? That's a trauma response. A trauma response is someone acted in a passive-aggressive way that my dad was acting, and now I'm shut down. Right? Those are trauma responses. Those are things that are involuntary and in response to something traumatic that I experienced, usually growing up. Okay? Another one is trust issues. That sounds general, right? Trust issues. Maybe not so bad, except it is. You know? One one chronic condition of kids 
who experience the process of adoption, one of the things that they carry on is a chronic broken heart. That many of them have been, have promises made to them repeatedly throughout their life about things that were going to change, things that were going to be better, things that were going to be different, and what inevitably happens. It doesn't. Promises are broken. And the relationship between promises and trust is broken. So another one is learned negative or abusive behaviors. That was pretty self-explanatory, you know? And keep in mind, these are kids, you know? These are kids. A lack of healthy life skills or relational skills. Hopelessness about family and themselves. All of that sucks. <laughs> that is not great. That's baggage. Now, I want you to imagine that a child who experienced that is all of a sudden plopped into a family, like the family of God, where people are constantly asking them to be Lord. We're constantly asking them, have peace, have joy, have hope, be real, you know? Like, it's not a bad thing, but we Christians are pretty emotionally demanding of each other. <laughs> yeah, we really are. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's like, I, I am always aware that people are like, wow, that's either a fruit of the Spirit or not a fruit of the Spirit, you know? It's very easy to carry that mentality into this family, right? So if I'm this kid that's carrying this baggage into my new family, one of the things that I'm going to learn to do very fast is not show it. Are you guys following? One of the things that I'm going to learn very fast not to do is to not look like I'm not part of the family. It's called masking. Hopefully it's clear at this point that I'm talking about us. <laughs> I'm not talking about some random kid. I'm talking about the fact that you and I are adopted into the family of God. When the Holy Spirit came, right, when we accepted Jesus, the Spirit changed your spiritual nature, connected you to God the Father, I was talking about in the beginning of this chapter, and made you something new. It connected you to a new family. But the baggage doesn't go away. The baggage doesn't leave magically because I now have the Holy Spirit. I now just have something else talking to me. And it's powerful, it's transformative, but it's not the only thing talking to me. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to break through our baggage. And what's kind of neat about this is that God is, he is aware of who he adopted, y'all. This is a mystery to him, what's in your heart. It isn't like, well, I adopted Jimmy, you know, and I, didn't, I just don't know why he's acting out like this. Maybe it's because he's innately bad. Like, no, that's not, what, that's not how God feels about you. That's not how he sees you. He knows who he adopted. And not only does he know, not only does he have an awareness, he has actually planned and given us the tools to overcome our baggage. That's love. Love isn't just an awareness and a forgiveness of people's stuff. It's, I'm going to help you get through this and not take it personal. That's the heart of the father. All right. So that was the why. You can go to the next one, Jesse. Yeah, we, we need a revelation. We need a breakthrough about this package. I'm going to call them knots in our heart. If that's okay with you guys, I like imagery. And I like to imagine that these things that still linger, um, are not necessarily always wounds that need to heal, but they are blockages for what his purpose is for me. The the area specifically that Paul says that we need wisdom and revelation, that we need breakthrough, divine intervention is our awareness of our hope and his power. So let's jump into that. Uh, Go to the next one. Let's read verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? So we're going to start on this topic of hope. You guys have been around me at all? This is going to be me beating the dead horse a little bit. This is what I'm like. Thanks. Our hope is broken. Our, 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 heart, our hope muscle in our heart has issues. Okay? It really does. And maybe some of you have been walking with the Lord for much longer than me, and like this is less of an issue for you. But the Bible is making it clear that this is an issue to some capacity for all of us. So we're just going to come before the scripture today and be like, okay, I have a hope problem. That's going to be dorky, but can you guys say that? I have a hope problem? Ha! Cool. Yeah, yeah, I said it. That's funny. We do have a hope problem. You know what? Hope is hard. It can feel heavy, you know? It can feel like when I'm trying to engage with hope that I am somehow trying to overcome every weight and every wound and every disappointment that I've ever experienced, right? I can manage love. That's a little bit too like this another topic. That's kind of can worms. I can, intellectually, I feel like I can manage other aspects of God and other things he is calling me to do. But when it comes to hope, that one's hard to actually be genuine about. Because I think if you're anything like me, when I say that I hope someone that I love is actually going to heal and come to know the Lord, there is a huge part of my heart that does not believe it's going to happen. Is that real? Like, do you guys feel that? There's a huge part of my heart that doesn't believe they're actually going to do it. And get this. This one hurts. Okay? You ready to hear it? There's a huge part of me that doesn't believe that I'm going to be there for them in the way that they need. I'm going to fall short. We need our hope healed. Because even if this is something that you've walked through with God like in the past, maybe two years ago, God really gave you breakthrough about something, the hope of yesterday is not sustaining you today. It was transformative. It was precious, but it is not sustaining you today. We need to re-engage with this. We need a divine revelation of hope. So, to do that, God uh, brought up like these three acknowledgments, because when you're preaching, you're supposed to have like lists and stuff, you know? It's a list. Um, he wants you to he wants you to acknowledge these three things when it comes to opening our heart about hope. Like that's the function of talking about this is maybe I can open myself up a little bit to, to the Lord and He can start to speak. Okay, that's the point of acknowledging these things. So the first one is that our hopes have been broken by the world. <laughs> that's a bummer, I know, but it's true. Because there's a lot of things that come really intuitively to kids, right? I hope I'm going to get enough. I hope I'm going to get a cool present. I hope that this person's going to give me affirmation. And that doesn't always happen. In fact, the opposite often happens. We often shut kids down for hoping that they're going to get their needs met. Why do you need attention? Stop it. Why do you need a hug? Stop being weak. Like, we say, I'm not saying that you say these things, I hope you don't, but these are things, as humans, we speak over children. And not just children, over adults, right? And these things get deep in my heart. These things get deep in our hearts until we start interpreting most negative experiences through a lens of broken hope. Yeah. Right? So that even when I'm hoping for something good, if it doesn't happen, like this has a really amplified effect in my heart. Let me give you an example. My dad, in my last... Um, semester in college, uh, was diagnosed with cancer for the second time in his life. Okay? Like, he beat it when I was a kid, and I came back. Okay? And that really sucked. Because I was just starting to get over all of my bad problems, 
and like get close to him again and do the whole thing, like the, the reconciliation thing with my dad. And then he started dying. And I prayed, and I'm not like the most like everyday disciplined kind of person, but like that's not really me. Um, but I prayed every day And I genuinely believed and had hoped for that God was going to heal him. I believed that I had heard God say that he was going to heal him. And it goes on and on. And if you've been around someone with cancer, it is a brutal process. Not just the sickness itself, but the treatments. Um, And toward the end, God told me in one of my prayer times that your dad is going to die. But when I feel him and bring him into heaven, I'm going to be releasing a seed of healing in your whole family. I didn't like that very much. I would say, actually, in that scene, and now that I'm thinking back to it, that initially my response was fairly good, because probably because I was in that rhythm of prayer and in that rhythm of hope. When he initially said it, there was more peace on it. Like, okay, you're right. This will probably happen. But probably, I mean, definitely, right? Faith. Um, and it's been four years, and I haven't seen any fruit of that. So let me tell you, over the course of four years, my relationship with that hope has deteriorated. Does that make sense? I don't know if there's anything in your life that feels like that, where he's like, I really thought you were going to do this, and you didn't. That can be a very very difficult thing to actually manage in our hearts and our walk with the Lord and continue to be honest with him and others about. If you're anything like me, you're not prone to talk about that part of it anymore, the disappointment part, the broken heart part, and what it can feel like. And I'm not sure if we have this verse up here, so it's okay, I'm just going to read it. It's from Job. Job went through a lot in the Bible, um, and most of what he said was coming from the perspective of someone who's going through something but isn't being very rational. Does that make sense? He says, and this is how he's feeling in Job. He, God, has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone and by hope he has pulled up like a tree. Now, I'm not saying that actually happened to Job, but that's what Job was feeling. Job was at least being honest when that was written. It feels like God has ripped my hope up like a tree. Okay, that's the first acknowledgement. I know it's a bit of a bummer. But it's true. What happens after that? Well, that's the second acknowledgement. And this happens developmentally for kids too. Um, Like if the connection that, as a child, that I longed for with my dad wasn't there. Eventually, that brokenness will evolve or morph into something that I'm replacing it with. Maybe it's a desire for connection with, um, with like, in a relationship or um, in a community or whatever. Like, those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they are replacing what was inherently a pure need, which was connection with my dad. We often settle, this is a second acknowledgement, for placeholders for hope. And I hope that that thought experiment at the beginning of this message helps illustrate that a little bit. So I'm not trying to say that any one of us is like, like really wrong. I'm just talking about natural processes of the heart. Um, it's interesting that if the main thing I'm willing to acknowledge when people are literally asking what I can they can pray for it for me are often superficial things. I would just feel better if my car would work. That's real. I would like to go get to work. I would like to go to provide for my family. I would just really like it if my relationship with my sister was better. That's a good thing. But it isn't the whole picture about what I need, is it? Because chances are, and I'm sure that this has happened to you, I have desperately thought that I needed God to break in financially in my life. And he does. He gives me the money out of nowhere. I get out of my hole. I'm vibing for like three or four months, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, no problems. 
This is great. God loves me. And then in six months, I need money again, right? So my car broke. My wife got sick. I had another baby. Like, all of a sudden, the things that I thought that I was needing and that I was praying for, and then God ended up giving me, like, the first fruits of, it's kind of revealed that that was never truly my need. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So I'm going to kind of challenge us with this, that we need to stop praying for things that we don't need and get to the heart of what God is actually doing. It, do we need to provide? Yes. But is that $5,000 actually the totality of how he's going to provide for you? No. There's some illustrations of this in the book of Proverbs. Uh, again, I don't know if it's up here, but I'm just going to read them for you guys. He says, The hope of the righteous brings joy but the expectation of the wicked will perish. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So, the point of acknowledging that is for me to acknowledge before God that I need him not just because I'm unaware, but also because I have gone out of my way to replace. I need him to tell me what hope is. Does that make sense? I need him to actually define it for me and replace it. It's broken, like placeholder thing in my heart with something real that is going to produce a tree of life instead of a sick heart. Okay, so the third one is we need God to define hope for us. And I think I do have a slide for this, Jesse, because there are nerd words in it. And I want you guys to read. There it is. Um, we need God to define hope for us. We need God to loosen the knots in our heart. So let's look at how God defines hope. In the Greek, the word hope that was used in that passage we read in Ephesians is the word elpis which is pretty cool. And what that translates to is not, I have a hopeful optimism about the future, or I have wishful thoughts about how the future can look, or even I believe the future is gonna look better. He says, uh, it translates to anticipate, to welcome properly, an expectation of what is sure or certain to come. I hope you guys notice how that is different in its intonation from the way that we talk about hope in the natural. When I talk about hope in the natural, I'm like, man, I really hope that, you know, Chiefs won another Super Bowl, because I do. That would make me happy. <laughs> but that hope is a type of wishful thinking. Some folks might say, I am manifesting positive things, right? But inherently, it is a fragile thing. It's a wisp of smoke. I'm just trying to get, you know? In the Hebrew, the word that we uh, can see for hope is the word tikva. I apologize to all the Jewish people. It translates to expectation, ground of hope, things hoped for, outcome, or interestingly, the word cord. That same word is used every place in the Old Testament that talks about the word that binds things together. That word is the same word that is used in reference to the cord that Rahab, the prostitute, put outside of her window that signified her transition from her old life into her new. It was a symbol of trust. It was a symbol that says, I don't really know this God. My only context for these gods is a country bunch of weirdos who just came to my house, but I believe that I'm not going to die because he is who they say they are. He, other way, he is who they say he is. It's a chord. So I hope what you're seeing in these biblical definitions of the word hope is that he is not talking about optimism or wishful things. He is not talking even about faith or belief, although those are related to hope. He is talking about 
an umbilical cord that connects us to the Father. He is talking about relational security with God the Father. So here's my little definition thing. Can you go to the next one, Jesse? True hope is a spiritual material produced by certainty about who God is and who he is for us. Spiritual material. It is not a wishful thought. It is not a, a belief of some sort. It is an actual binding material between us and God. Okay, so what does this mean? That's all great, Josiah. It's a very interesting word play, but what does this actually mean? How does it help me with my problem? Okay, you can go to the next one, Jesse. True hope functions in three ways. Like I said, true hope is a cord that connects us to God. Okay? So if we're defining hope as a spiritual material, or as a rope of some sort, or let's use the analogy of an umbilical cord, I cannot get away from it then, right? In the same way that a baby in the womb cannot get away from its mother, we actually can't get away from who God is. We can avoid it, like we were talking about in the beginning. We cannot have the conversation. But all of those people that I rattle off to eventually have to acknowledge that they were tethered to the Lord. I don't get to choose whether or not this conversation happens. I get to choose when it happens. And I pray to God it's not when I'm having to stand and answer for my life. You know what I'm saying? See, he's not going to be a jerk then. He's going to be like, yo, like, I, you have a lot of time. You had a lot of time. I gave you so many times. <laughs> Why didn't you want to talk to me? I love you. You knew that. So hope is a connection to the Lord. True hope is a seedbed that produces faith. Hebrews 11 says that faith is basically a substance of things hoped for and not seen. Okay. So if I'm claiming to have faith, that has to be springing from hope, biblically. That's the process of this spiritually. For me to say, I have faith in the promises of God. I have faith about what he says for me. I have faith about what he says about my family. That's not true if I'm not walking in hope. The last one. Oh, I mean, the other one about Zechariah's school because he uses a word that basically says I'm going to this core is going to produce double of what you've lost in your life, and that's pretty neat. Um, but I like this last one a lot, because I think it's most related to what we're reading in Ephesians 1. The Bible defines hope as the enemy of shame. I'm not sure if we have, do we have Romans 5 in there, Jesse? No? Okay, I'll just read it. I'm going to read you guys a passage from Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know the reason I think that we truly, truly, truly struggle with this is that hope, hope in how God sees me feels like it's dependent on me. These promises that he talks about in Ephesians 1, he says, I want you to have uh, an enlightened experience, a, a sudden awareness about the hope that you have as inheritance with Christ. It's hope and promises. Hope and promises that Jesus earned. Hope and promises that are holy and eternal and good. That doesn't like, sound like something I deserve. I am fine, God, if you want to give me like a broom in heaven to do some work. 
I'm used to that. I'm comfortable with that. I'm fine if there is like a special table for all of the adopted kids to sit at. That would be more in line with my baggage. But that's not what he's talking about, y'all. Romans 8 says, you have been adopted as co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is going to accompany the coronation of Jesus, you're going to experience too. Every part. That doesn't sound like something I deserve. That sounds like something I'm going like, to not live up to, you know? So these promises that are made about me are inherently difficult to believe because of my baggage, which the Bible calls shame. The Bible calls shame. Shame, I didn't write this down, but I would would characterize shame as like this hyper-awareness of self. You know, some folks might call it self-consciousness, but it's like, when I asked you originally, what do you need prayer for? Part of what you thought about is how you wanted to be perceived by me. That's just the reality. Part of the reason I'm wearing a shirt with buttons on it is because I want you to perceive me as someone you should be listening to. (laughs) That's me being real with you. I'm more comfortable in a t-shirt. <laughs> and I'm not sh- saying that my button shirt is predominantly the product of shame, but I'm also not saying that that didn't influence it. I'm also not saying that part of the way that you worship in this building when we're worshiping isn't influenced by how others are looking at you. I, can't, I need to be excited, but not too excited. You know what I'm saying? Hope is the enemy of shame because if it's true, what the Bible says about it, it is more so predicated, sorry, more so related to the person of God than me, right? So part, another, another place that I thought was very, very beautiful illustrating this point was in the book of Hosea. And if you know anything about the book of Hosea, it sucks. It really is a difficult one. I will summarize it. There's a prophet named Hosea. He heard from God. God told him, marry a prostitute. Stay faithful. Don't divorce her. Okay, God, that sounds fine. So she's going to like stop, right? And it's going to be this beautiful image. And God is like, no. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. It's going to really suck. And Hosea was like, Okay, <laughs> and he did it, which is kind of cool. So he marries this, this girl, and he calls her his beloved. He calls her his wife. He treats her as a wife. He treats her with respect and with dignity, with trust. And she continues to live her lifestyle in sin. But Hosea doesn't abandon her. Hosea holds on in hope for her. Dang, this is a new one that I just realized. The reason why this is so important, guys, is because we are, in this effort to rebuild hope in our heart, we are just replicating the hope that God cared for you. We are responding to his hope with our own. Because he didn't leave us in the ditch when we were living a lifestyle of being violated for a living. In Hosea 2, it says this. Hosea 2 is the good part, by the way. Good part. So if you're wanting, like, wow, that's so beautiful, huh? read that. <laughs> if you want the full context, read all of it. Because uh, this kind of gnarly. Um, but Hosea 2, 14 and 15 says this. This is the Lord, or the Lord to us, or Hosea to his wife. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of a corridor of hope. 
And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Um, the Valley of Achor uh, was a place in the book of Joshua where Israel, up until that point, Joshua, like, it's all triumphant, you know, for, like doing a thing, taking the cities. God's really working powerfully. Like, it's so cool. But Achor is where it all stopped because somebody decided instead of engaging with the promises God has for me, I want to get a little bit for myself on the side just in case. And all the victory comes to a screeching halt. And the Israelites are like, yo, this is not good. We're walking in faith. We're walking in power. And all of a sudden, the favor is gone. So they figure out what had happened. They deal with it. They resolve it. And they continue to walk in victory. But that place always stayed there. They ended up having to kill a guy and his whole family and burn all his stuff. It was always geographically and spiritually a reminder of the failure of the people of God. It represented a barrier or a knot in their ability to, to hope. Because they had now experienced something that said, I might mess up again. I'm not going to fully engage with what God is doing because I don't want another acorn. And here he is saying in Hosea, yo, look at that place in your heart. He says, yo, look at that place in your heart that is your valley of acorn. For some of you, it might be a past relationship, okay? That's just real. For some of you, it might be a, a, a thing that you believe is truly going to happen, like with my dad, um, that I told you about before. He says he wants to turn that place that represents my failure and shortcomings and insecurities, that represents my shame, into a door of hope. He can turn our shame into doors of hope. That is hard. Because there is a language, like I said, of shame internally that makes me inherently not believe that this is true. But we need him to speak into this, guys. These knots have to be acknowledged. Okay. So we're going to look at the last thing that Paul prays. Okay? Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. He said that we need a divine revelation about hope. And he said that we need a divine revelation about power. And that should be that last one, Jesse. There we go. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So we need a revelation and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, how does this help? I don't know about you guys, but when I read a passage like this, and I'm not taking my time, I tend to skim. <laughs> I'm like, cool. There's like a really long sentence about how good Jesus is. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> I know that. Let's get on with it, you know? Talk more about me. I need help. That really sucks. Because the gospel isn't about me. It's not even about us. It's related to us. But yo, the story of good news is not, oh man, good thing Josiah gets to go to heaven. You know? That's not the, the plot. That's a supporting detail. The plot is him. 
he is going to be king. He proved his worthiness in his sacrifice for me. He proved his holiness in his commitment to love. He proved his love in his willingness to bring me into what he's doing. But it is still about him. How crazy is it that subconsciously I am prone to skim over something that says all things have been placed under the hand of Jesus? How crazy is it that I am prone to skim about something that says all things have been put under his feet and he has been given authority over all things? This scripture is used this amazing language. It says, You need to have a revelation about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you because you are not getting it. You are not getting that this man defeated death. You are not getting that hope does not necessarily arise from, man, I really hope my life's going to be better. Hope arises from the fact that death isn't the end. Hope arises from the fact that he defeated the grave and he is planning on defeating my grave too. He is planning on yanking me out of it. The word for power that Paul uses in this passage is the word dunamis, which which translates to miraculous power, might, strength, physical force, ability, efficacy, meaning. What I believe the Lord is saying this morning, and uh, the band's going to come on if you guys are ready, is that if I want the Lord to start replacing my shame with hope, I need my heart to start looking at his power again. Because it didn't stop when he pulled me out of death. It didn't stop when he adopted me into the family. It's just getting started. The healing he is bringing to my baggage and to your baggage is just beginning. Thanks for listening to the Glory Podcast. For more information about this message or Glory Church, please visit glorychurchkc.com.